say good night, everybody. This is Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. And this is a pretty special Halloween episode for me. It's one that I'm perhaps more excited about than I have been uh, for a podcast in a long time. And it's because I'm going to talk about a memory from the summer of 1988. My first job in law, I suppose, while I was in law school. It's the very first memory that I have of my career. And it was when I was just finishing my first year of law school. I'm going to get into that in a bit. It's an incredible story. And I probably should have known that early on that I was going to have an interesting career because certainly the way it started. I apologize for missing last week's podcast. I was incredibly busy on a case. And I'm going to talk about that case once the ink is dry on the settlement that was a civil case. But uh, an extraordinarily massive amount of work in a short period of time paid instant dividends. And it really, it was a lot of lessons to be learned from that case. And as I get older, I realize that I know more than I did when I was younger. I may not be able to work as hard for as long, but I know so much more that I can short circuit things. And everything that I knew, all the decades of, of learning things in law really reared its not ugly head in that case. And I'm going to go into that at some point and describe what happened because that really is an incredible story as well on a civil litigation. I don't do too many civil litigations, but boy, I enjoy them when I get the chance. Now, this week, we're going to talk about John Fetterman and the Dr. Oz debate as well in a bit, but I, I first want to talk about a major loss in the music world, and, and I'm a huge music fan, if you don't know. When I did talk radio from 2006, I suppose, through the middle of 2013, at the end, I was doing it five days a week in the afternoon show on a radio station in New York City. The music was so important to me that all the bumper music I would pick, I never let them pick songs for me. And sometimes I'd let the music go on, not for 10 or 15 seconds, but sometimes for two minutes. I'd play songs that I knew people had never heard before. And it just was important for me to get that music out there, no matter who it was. Sometimes it was very famous people. Some very famous musicians. Sometimes it was musicians that were not so famous. But Jerry Lee Lewis died this week at the age of 87. And, and I have to tell you, I'm upset about it. At this age, um, you know, losing a musician that meant so much to me at various parts of my life. Um, I loved his music, The Killer. That was his nickname. And it wasn't because of one of uh, his seven wives died under mysterious circumstances at the bottom of a pool. I think he got the nickname actually for attempting to strangle one of his teachers. But by all accounts, Jerry Lee Lewis was a horrible human being, if you listen to the press, if you listen to some of his contemporaries. But I don't care about his personal life uh, when I'm judging the man's music. I'm not in such a position uh, of exalted status that I'm not going to listen to music because of something that the man may or may not have done in his personal life. I mean, that's not why I listen to music so that I can virtue signal. I listen to music because I like the music. And again, I've heard some ridiculous stories. Uh, one rock star that I know once had me procure a signed baseball from Jerry Lee Lewis. I have one um, that I kept to myself, but there was a second one. And I sent it back to this rock star and he promptly peed on it sealed it up in a Ziploc baggie, and mailed it back to Jerry Lee. Hmm. 
I'm certain that this rock star had massive respect for Jerry Lee as an artist, perhaps not as much as a human being. But his music, it's undeniable. He was one of the architects, one of the, the, the forebearers of rock and roll. He's the last one standing. And if I miss somebody, I apologize, but I think of the beginning of rock and roll as Elvis Presley, Little Richard, Chuck Berry, Fats Domino, Buddy Holly, Bill Haley and the Comets. You can go back a little bit earlier to see sort of the roots of rock and roll, but I, you have to draw a line somewhere, and that's where I drew it. His music was just completely unbridled, out of control chaos, but controlled chaos. He was the wildest piano player of all time, and like he said, he wasn't the greatest. He was the best, and I agree. He was the best. There was no man alive or now, not anymore now, who had his mix of talent, self-confidence, recklessness, and whose music just screamed freedom. When you listen to it, you forgot everything else that was going on in your life, and you just felt exhilarated and free. He was always uh, the, the musician that played last on tours when he was on with other musicians because no one wanted to follow Jerry Lee on the stage. He would have been a hundred times bigger publicly, I suppose, had he made some better personal choices in his life. But he lived his way, and he frankly didn't give a damn what anybody thought about him, which was another lesson for me as a young man listening to him. I loved that part of him, is that he did what he wanted to do, for better or for worse, he did it his way. And he never changed from the beginning until the end. He was a stubborn mule. He bent a knee to no one until the very end. Now, his biggest hits were Great Balls of Fire and a whole lot of shaking go going on, which are the ones that nearly everyone uh, are, are familiar with. But there were other great songs that he did. Breathless uh, was an incredible song, High School Confidential. And he did a duet with Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin's, of Zeppelin's Rock and Roll. I'm not even sure if they were in the same studio when the song was recorded, but the thought of the two of them together, the greatest guitar player of all time and the greatest piano player of all time, with completely opposite personalities and backgrounds, but equal, perhaps, in greatness. It's almost too much to imagine. The live album, Live at the Star Club in Hamburg, might be the greatest live album ever recorded. You should listen to it today. Losing Jerry Lee Lewis means another musical genius, a giant on this earth is gone, and you need to appreciate them while they're here because they won't be here forever, but the music lives on. Okay, and uh, now that uh, I've gotten that out of my system a little bit, I have to talk about John Fetterman, the John Fetterman, Dr. Oz, uh, Pennsylvania Senate race, and uh, the debate which occurred last week. I did a bit on this a couple weeks ago, and I pointed out how grotesque it was that Fetterman, you know, it's that big, bold galumph with his brain scrambled from a stroke that he suffered in May, just two days before the Democratic Senate primary. He had a stroke, and his wife and campaign lied to the public about the severity of it. And then it was later revealed that Fetterman himself had lied to the public about his prior medical condition that existed before the stroke, that he had a heart condition an irregular heartbeat, which hadn't been previously divulged. And that was the condition which actually caused the stroke. 
Also not told to the public was that Fetterman was warned five years ago about this heart condition. He was given medication, told to come back to the doctor in a few months, and instead he ignored the heart problems, didn't take the medication, and never came back to the doctor until five years later, after he had the stroke, when he needed a letter proclaiming him fit to serve in the Senate, which is like kind of a joke. I played some clips of some of the gaffes that he had had on the campaign trail when it was clear he, he just couldn't think straight, he couldn't speak straight, he couldn't do anything straight. He was just a jumbled mess, even when reading off a teleprompter. Now, lying about a candidate or even a president's physical condition isn't new. We all know that JFK lied about his health while in office. Trump had his doctor write a letter saying if elected, he'd be the healthiest president ever. That's obviously a lie. Look at him. But Fetterman, his thing is different because, first of all, his election is coming up. He's not in office yet. That's the first thing. Secondly, his health condition isn't like a bad back or high cholesterol. It's his brain. It's, it's just not working right. He's got brain damage. And he clearly is in no position to serve in any kind of of competent manner. So it's different from lying about uh, Kennedy's Addison disease by not disclosing it, you know. So what did Addison disease uh, do to Kennedy? It cost him some energy, I suppose, during the day due to an uh, I think it's an adrenal gland issue. Trump was fat and saying that he's healthy, who cares? Woodrow Wilson had a massive stroke while in the White House in 1919. His wife Edith acted in his stead. Uh, until his term ended, I guess, two years later in 21. And that was kept from the public. But that was over 100 years ago. And we were just over World War One, which had just ended. And, and he was already in place in the presidency. It was a different situation. Like I said, Fetterman is not a president and he hasn't even been elected yet. So Fetterman had this stroke in May, two days before the Democratic primary that he's way ahead uh, in polling in. And two days later, after the stroke, when he was surely either unconscious or at least incapacitated, he released a statement. Naturally, it was a written statement. And it said, quote, the amazing doctors here were able to quickly and completely remove the clot, reversing the stroke. They got my heart under control as well. It's a good reminder to listen to your body and be aware of the signs. The good news is I'm feeling much better, and the doctors tell me I didn't suffer any cognitive damage. I'm well on my way to a full recovery. Now, obviously, that's a complete lie. And this is like back in, in May. I mean, we're talking six months ago. It was just a lie. We all saw with our own eyes that he's not uh, back to normal, that he, that he uh, does, in fact, suffer from cognitive damage. And he didn't write that statement, not a word, clearly. He probably was incapacitated at the time that that statement was written by either his, not his wife, because she's too dumb to write it, but somebody in the campaign. The statement nevertheless came from him. It was quoted. It was a fraud on the public. Two weeks later, after winning the primary, he gave a different statement, written again, of course, because he can't speak. The stroke I suffered on May 13 didn't come out of nowhere. Like so many others and so many men in particular, I avoided going to the doctor, even though I knew I didn't feel well. As a result, I almost died. I want to encourage others to not make the same mistake. Like, whoa, you know, you went from, you know, this was not a big deal to I almost died. In just two weeks, and coincidentally, he said the bad, scary part after he won the primary, won the nomination for the Senate seat. 
Now, immediately after the stroke, Fetterman's wife, a former illegal alien from Brazil, said his stroke, which, again, we learned two weeks later he nearly died from, she described it as a hiccup. A hiccup. That's it. Weeks later, after he still hadn't been seen in public, despite the stroke that apparently nearly killed him, uh, she said, I think he deserves a month break to come back as strong as ever. This is going to be a tough race and a really important race. I want him to be fully ready for it. This was like in June. She knew full well that he wasn't coming back as strong as ever. She knew that she lied about this being a hiccup. This wasn't a hiccup. The guy's a disaster. He's a walking disaster. Now, no one told her that Fetterman was coming back as strong as ever. She lied. That's just a flat-out lie. This enabling, greedy, power-hungry maniac thinks that she can keep lying to the American public? It's, it's, it's astonishing. This is a really important race, as she said, to her. And to Democrats who want the power. They need that Senate seat. They need that vote. She said those words about him coming back as strong as ever, as I said, early in June of this year. It's you know now November. Does he seem, if you saw the, the debate, does he seem strong as ever to you months later? She also said, that's why we shared the last statement from the doctor. As soon as we had it available, it was out. I think it's important to share, not only because I think transparency is important, because I hope it inspires other people to take action on their own health. Fuck you, you liar. She lied repeatedly about the severity of the damage from the stroke. She called it a hiccup when it clearly wasn't. She said he was coming back as strong as ever. They lied about his prior pre-existing heart condition, which caused the stroke. There was no transparency at all. And the statements changed dramatically in terms of the seriousness of the stroke before the primary vote and after. She just completely lied. She's learned a lot coming to America. Just lie your ass off and you can get away with it. Now, all of a sudden, she's all about transparency. This is like a Brazilian Yoko Ono who clearly wants a Senate seat for herself. She's doing interviews all day, saying the, saying the stupidest shit, mainly because she's an abject moron. She said that swimming pools are racist. You can't even go fucking swimming anymore without being accused of being racist. She compared his inability to speak or form sentences to not being able to see your phone screen without turning up the brightness level. Maybe this is something we need to normalize, she said. No, not being able to speak or think is not normal. It's not. It's damaged. It's abnormal. This is like when, uh, when Igor put in the abnormal brain into young Frankenstein. Anybody of a certain age watch that movie? Early 70s, young Frankenstein? And then Igor tried to pass it off as a non-issue. Abby normal is abnormal. Nothing to be ashamed of, but you shouldn't be running for senator. You had a stroke. You can't think. You can't speak. You can't hear. Giselle, the wife, is a really stupid person. If she wasn't married to this Jethro Bodine, she'd be unclogging toilets somewhere. That's the Democratic Party, and Fetterman's campaign can't stop her from doing these daily idiotic interviews. It tells me they either can't control her or they don't care. My guess is they can't control her. You think Fetterman is bad? Wait until you get this Brazilian communist into office when Fetterman wins, and then the Democratic governor appoints her to, to uh, fulfill his term. You want this illegal alien lunatic lying 
Jesus Christ, come on. She demanded that the NBC reporter who dared to note a few weeks ago that Fetterman, after an interview, had difficulty talking to her small talk in the days leading up to the debate. Giselle wanted her punished for reporting the truth. Just for reporting the truth. This was a liberal reporter. The reporter was right. She was just reporting. And she was right, as we saw a few days later during the debate. Fetterman's wife was trying to obstruct our press corps. She thinks she's still in Brazil. She was trying to get a crowd of leftists with pitchforks and torches to silence this reporter. It was awful. But as bad as as this power-hungry idiot Giselle Fetterman is, she's actually a horrible, evil person, pure evil. She knows her husband is very sick. She sees him suffering when he's trying to speak. She sees how he's still very ill. Anyone can see it. And she keeps pushing him out there because she wants, because she needs. And God damn it, John, get your ass out there and campaign. I need this. A wife is supposed to protect her husband, shield him, protect him, lay down her life for him if need be to save him. She's using him for her own personal gain, and it is painful and sickening to watch. So nearly five months after Giselle said that the stroke was a hiccup, nearly five months after she promised he'd be as strong as ever in July, John Fetterman was forced to debate Dr. Oz. Oz wanted seven debates. Fetterman begrudgingly agreed to one as close as possible to the election so that all the write-ins could get in for him, all the leftist write-in votes could be submitted before they realized that their candidate was a plate of squash. Now, let me be clear. I don't particularly like Oz. He's a leftist running as a Republican. He's endorsed by Trump, who I consider to be an ignoramus. But Oz is competent. He can talk and chew gum at the same time. I think that's a minimal requirement to run for senator, don't you think? Unlike Fetterman. And the debate was so bad, so much worse than you could ever imagine. He was confused. He was inappropriately loud. He was frustrated. And I've got some clips for you. The performance of the debate was shocking. This was after he prepared for weeks for this debate. Now, my trusty producer is going to line up these clips, and it's going to be smooth as silk on this podcast. Here's his opening line. He had an opening line for the debate. God knows how long he prepared to get ready for this first line. Already he had it ready to go. Listen to how smooth this guy is. Ready? Play it. What qualifies you to be a U.S. senator? You have 60 seconds. Hi. Good night, everybody. Hi. Good night, everybody. He fucked up the first line, the very first line. He, he, he practiced it a million times. He was nervous. He was shaking. Hi. Good night, everybody. I expected him to simply say that line, turn around on his heel, and walk off the stage, never to come back. That was bonkers, right? bonkers here's the second clip he's talking about inflation about you know how he'd handle inflation ready play the second clip in administration overspent and if so where do you think spending should be cut you have 60 seconds Now, here's what I think we have to fight about inflation here right now that's what we need to fight about inflation you know right now because it's a tax on working families you know and Dr. Oz can't possibly understand what that is like 
You know, he has 10 gigantic mansions. You know, he we, we must push back against corporate greed. We must make sure that we're also pushing back against price gouging as well, too. You know, we also be able to make more in Pennsylvania and make more in America. When he had a choice to make his merchandise, the Oz label is on, he made it all in China. You know, who can you believe that can fight against inflation and pushing back against corporate greed or somebody that is chosen working in China versus over American workers? Okay, now, this is gibberish, the answer. He's saying nothing. He was asked where spending should be cut in order to reduce inflation. He couldn't respond with a single word that made sense. This guy should be gargling applesauce and it should be shooting out of his nose. That's the level of discourse he's capable of. Inflation? Gibberish. Naturally, he can remember to insult the other guy because that he can do well. And he keeps saying, you know, you know, it's annoying as fuck. Next clip was uh, talking about the possible increase in minimum wage. Ready? Play that one. Now, we, we all have to make sure that everyone that works is able to. That's that's the most American bargain, that if you work full time, you should be able to live in dignity as well. True. And I believe they haven't have any businesses being being uh we can't have businesses being subsidized by not paying ind- uh, individuals that just simply can't have to, to pay their own way. Again, nothing made sense. Listen to it. It made no sense. The guy asking the question was cringing. He's wincing. Fetterman sounded like his brain exploded, which it actually did in May. And yet Fetterman manages to keep insulting Oz. At some point of I'm Oz, I would have turned to him after one of these nonsensical answers and just said, what in the actual fuck is wrong with you? You can't do this job. And it's true. If he was a hot dog vendor, he'd be home on disability. If he was a guy who cut the grass and had the stroke, he'd be home on disability. Not for a month, for years. Name me a job that would allow him to come back working a month after a stroke like this where he's left unable to think and speak and listen. If he worked any job, he wouldn't be allowed back for a year or two. But this power-hungry galumph, this scowling gargoyle, is going to get elected senator, and he's got pudding for brains. Here's another clip. He was asked about releasing his medical records. Remember, Giselle said they're all about transparency. What is the problem? Ready? Play this clip. Last week, you released this note from your doctor saying you can work full duty in public office, but you have not released your detailed medical records surrounding your stroke. Mr. Fetterman, will you pledge tonight to release those records in the interest of transparency? You have 60 seconds. Uh, to me, for transparency is about showing up. I'm here today to have a debate. I have, you know, spe- speeches in front of 3,000 people in Montgomery County, you know, all across Pennsylvania, big, big crowds. You know, I believe if my doctor believes that I'm fit to serve, and and that's what I believe is appropriate. And now, with two weeks before the election, you know, I have run a campaign, and I've been very transparent about being very open about the fact we're in use captioning. And I believe that again, my doctors, the real doctors that I believe in, they all believe that I'm ready to be served. Follow up. I didn't hear you say you would release your full medical records. Why not? You have 30 seconds. No. Uh, yeah, again, my doctor all believes that I'm fit to be serving, and that's what I believe is where I'm standing. 
Okay, Mr. First thing he says, if you listen, is a mutter, no, no. And, and he can't even button the top shirt, the top button on his shirt. Look at him. It's like a gorilla with a suit on. They couldn't find the shirt that could fit him, that could fit around his neck. I mean, come on. Are, are there really no such dress shirts that fit a, a nine-foot-tall man with a 38-inch neck? Really? You can't make one shirt that you can button up the top button. He's talking about transparency. How transparent is he about his health? He neglected to mention they tried to cover up his heart problems before the stroke, after the stroke. And yes, I want a U.S. senator uh, as a guy who says, my doctors believe I am ready to be served. My doctors believe I am fit to be serving, and I believe that is where I am standing. Yeah, that's a guy who should be U.S. senator. Meanwhile, his doctor who wrote the letter isn't any kind of stroke specialist, isn't a neurologist. He's like a family doctor. Oh, and by, by the way, he's also uh, donated to the Fetterman campaign to this monstrosity. Here's the next clip, and this is one of my favorites. He's asked about fracking. Does he support fracking? Is he against fracking? It's very important to the state of Pennsylvania, fracking. Let's play that clip now. Mr. Oz, I do want to clarify something. You're saying tonight that you support fracking, that you've always supported fracking. But there is that 2018 interview that you said, quote, I don't support fracking at all. So how do you square the two? Oh, uh, I, I, I do support fracking and I don't I don't. I support fracking, and I stand, and I do support fracking. Okay, thank you, Mr. Now, he was asked about whether he supported fracking, because as I said, once he said he did, once he said he didn't, and he managed to give an answer that cleared nothing up. I just noticed, on listening to it this time, that the moderator mistakenly addressed the question to Dr. Oz. Like, Fetterman doesn't have it bad enough with a block of ice as a brain, but he had to figure out that the question was actually for him. He made no sense, the answer. It, it just made no sense at all. Now, here's the next clip. And he was asked, you know, you support President Biden. Is there anything that you disagree with Biden on? Listen to this nonsensical answer. Go ahead. Play the clip. All right. Thank you, Mr. Fetterman. A follow-up question on this. Our next star poll shows 51% of Pennsylvania voters disapprove of the president's job performance. You have publicly supported many of his policy positions. Are there any that you disagree with? 30 seconds. No, I, I just believe he needs to do more about supporting uh, and fighting about in, in inflation. Uh, and I, I do believe he can do more about that. Now, I would have taken 30 minutes to answer this question. Fetterman was frozen. You could see, if you watch the video, he was trying to get words out. They weren't coming. Watch the video. I actually transcribed what he said. These are the words that came out of his idiot mouth. I just believe he needs to do more about supporting inflating inflation. And I do believe he can do more about that choice what the fuck mushmouth i mean come on man what then uh, oz asked him to apologize to the innocent black guy who fetterman put a shotgun up to his chest years ago never got arrested for some reason listen to this clip person on the stage who's broken the law we believe john fetterman took a shotgun chased a unarmed african-american man and put the gun apparently according to that man to his chest 
John, you weren't pulled over by the police. Uh, they let you go. You were the mayor at the time. Why haven't you apologized to that unarmed, innocent black man who you put a shotgun to his chest? All right. We will allow a 30 second response to that, Mr. Fetterman, specifically what he was saying, referring no. to the incident in Braddock. No. I I made the opportunity to defend my community as the, the chief law enforcement officer there. Everybody in Braddock, uh, an overwhelmingly majority uh, community of, of black uh, community, all understood what happened. You know, they, uh, they understood what happened, and everybody agreed that, and nobody believes that it was anything about me making a split-second decision to, to defend our community as well. Why not apologize? Uh, uh, Naturally, Fetterman's answer was was pure idiotic madness. I don't even have words for that one. It just doesn't answer anything. It doesn't make any sense. Now, here's actually um, Fetterman speaking after the debate. He was asked how well he did, and I want you to, to listen to this. I think it's pretty telling. Go ahead. Play that. Real believe, real believe it. Helping the baker and the butcher bring the boxes in from the back. Okay, that was actually a mush mouth from Fat Albert. Sorry about that. That was a that was a joke. And yes, I'm making fun of him, and I'm making fun of his disability because it's funny. Hey, listen, he put it out there, so I'm making fun of it. You don't like it too bad. Now, here's Oz uh, trying to give his closing statement. I love this. He's trying to give a closing statement, and Fetterman's brain just seems to snap. Ready? Here, play this, uh, this last clip. Go ahead. Talk to couples when I make their first down payment on a new house and they can't afford it anymore because of interest rates. I've talked to families. You want to cut Social Security. M- Mr. Fetterman, it's his turn for his closing. Now, his brain knew he wasn't supposed to interrupt the closing statement. In the history of debates, all 83 million of them, no one has ever interrupted a closing statement. But Fetterman's brain just stopped working and it like sort of went poof. It, ex- it imploded. It was like everyone there had to pretend that Fetterman was a normal person the entire time when everyone knew it was like watching a train wreck with a train running over a car, which had just run over nine infants. (laughs) Now, Chris Cuomo, uh, Fredo, had on his show a neurologist. Now, no one watches Chris Cuomo's show, so you had to really dig for this one. But to his credit, he had a neurologist on the show watching the debate. And it was actually pretty brilliant to do so. I mean, it was a good idea. God knows no other leftist member of the press would dare to be objective. They were all circling the wagons around the Mongo instead. Anyway, the neurologist watched that car crash dressed up as a size 74 long suit and said that the great majority of improvement after a stroke comes at three to six months if you're doing therapy, which Fetterman is. She noted that it's already six months after the stroke now. This is what she said. This is probably where he has improved to the most. That's what she said. This is as good as it's going to get for the rest of his term. Is this what we want as one of the hundred senators in America? We can't do better? Really? Now, suddenly this little hiccup, which uh, they were hiding, is now a disability that they're proud of. Before they were hiding it, now that they couldn't hide it anymore, they have to claim that it's a disability, and how dare you suggest that he shouldn't be permitted to have this spot? They insist that a disabled American get a Senate seat, or else you're just a bigot, or an ableist. When Mark Kirk, the Republican senator from Illinois, had a stroke when he was in office, the leftist media endorsed his opponent when he ran for re-election. Why? Because he couldn't perform well enough due to, you guessed it, his stroke. But Fetterman is a, a Democrat, a liberal, a leftist, a communist, and he must be elected so that we can treat disabled people fairly. 
Now, I think what we should insist upon next is that we should have legless swimmers for our Olympic swimming teams. We can have uh, low-grade morons for our NASA scientists. Why not? They deserve a chance, too. And seven-feet-tall men, they should be allowed to be horse jockeys. It's the right thing to do. Must not be an ableist. Now, the leftist media compared Fetterman's disability to FDR's, if you can believe. Now, FDR was paralyzed from polio. He wasn't a dumb village idiot who then suffered brain damage from a stroke. Fetterman was an idiot before he became disabled. But look at him now. Does that look like FDR? Or does that look like something you would imagine uh, an abortion would grow up to be if it survived 50-something years? MSNBC's Lawrence O'Donnell compared Fetterman to Winston Churchill. I mean, Jesus Christ. Yes, uh, Churchill was sick a lot, but he wasn't unable to think. He wasn't unable to communicate clearly. And he was in office when these things happened, Churchill. We don't need to rely on this uh, poor man's Herman fucking monster, John Fetterman. He should have stepped aside and let someone else run. But the Democrats will do anything for power, including sacrificing this idiot Fetterman. They want the seat so bad, knowing that if, if he's not even close to being up for the job, it doesn't matter. He's got a pulse with a vote, and that's all they care about, party before country. This is why we can't live together. We can't. We can't live together as a country. This is why we need a national divorce. Leftists have gone so crazy, they think a guy like Fetterman should be in the Senate. Let the guy get better and run again in six years. Let him run for Congress in a year, assuming that his brains begin working again. They want that power, and they don't care if, if they have to elect a rotting corpse to get it. Ugh, it's frustrating. Now, the election is in a week and a half, so I guess next weekend I'll talk about it again. I'm going to uh, very quickly uh, pivot. Pivot. I'm not going to take a break yet, but I want to pivot about Paul Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi's drunk husband who makes millions of dollars on inciting trader tips that he gets from his wife. I don't have much to say about this. He was allegedly attacked by some right-wing maniac obsessed with January 6th. That's what the leftist press is saying. That's the narrative. And Hillary Clinton, Nancy Pelosi, and the rest of them are pushing this January 6th far-right position. That's their their their, their whole uh concept of what happened and they're pushing it on the public just days before this very important midterm election because they're so desperate for votes how perfectly convenient by the way don't you think that that's the narrative that they're pushing of course it's not true and again i'm not going to go into this because all the dust hasn't settled but let's just say that the official story makes no sense some guy who lives with a well-known nudist in berkeley had a Black Lives Matter sign in the window of his whatever the shithole that he lived in, an LGBT plus Q, whatever, rainbow flag with a marijuana symbol on it at the house and a broken down camper van in front of it. That sounds like a right winger, right? Meanwhile, he's it was a left winger until recently, they're claiming. Now he's a right winger, so that's all that matters. We're told that Paul Pelosi told police that this lunatic who somehow... Um, his name was known to Pelosi, Paul Pelosi as David, was described as a friend, um, and that when the police arrived, they were led in by a third party into the house in the middle of the night. Why didn't they mention who that third party is? Why does Paul Pelosi have people in his house in the middle of the night? What, does he need, like a minder or something? And why don't we get that name? Why are they hiding it? 
It's been days since the alleged attack. We, we still don't know who else was staying in the Pelosi home. The police came in and they discovered Pelosi and his attacker, who naturally was in his underwear, <laughs> both gripping a single hammer. Now, I don't think that's a metaphor of the single hammer. I think they meant an actual hammer in front of the police. Now, I don't even know where the hammers are in my house. It'll take me 10 minutes to find them. Somehow, Paul Pelosi and David, his friend, were both grappling, well, at least one of them was in his underwear, with a hammer in front of the police. And then the police allowed the attacker to pull it out of Pelosi's hand and smash him in the skull with it a few times. They watched it and they allowed it to happen. Does that make any sense to you? I don't think so. In the call, the 911 dispatcher was speaking and noted again that Pelosi claimed to not know the person that was in his home, but his name was David and he was a friend. And Pelosi is described as confused. Now, we know that Paul Pelosi is an old drunk who spends his days rattling around his empty zillion-dollar home while his wife is in D.C. He badly injured another driver a few months ago while driving drunk and crashing into a Jeep. As he was being arrested, Pelosi tried to get out of it by handing over to the police, along with his license, a membership card to a charitable organization that supports police and their families. Oh, that's, that's, that's something you want from Nancy Pelosi's husband. So you'll excuse me if I don't take his word for any of this, and I certainly won't take the word of Nancy Pelosi or any far leftist, because they're all degenerate liars. Let's see what comes out of it, if it's even possible that the truth can ever come out. But I'm not buying it. Now, we're going to take a break, and when I get back, we're going to talk about the boys from New Jersey. This is a blast from my past and everyone's past. Thanks for listening. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. And this is a story back to 1988. My first summer job in law school. I was finishing my first year at Duke University. The Boys from New Jersey is the name of a book about the longest running criminal trial in America. The case of United States versus the Boys from New Jersey. The Jersey Crew or the New Jersey faction of the Lucchese crime family. 21-month trial, 20 defendants. It was a RICO trial with drug dealing and extortion being the main stuff. As I said, I was a law student at Duke starting in the fall of 1987. I had no money, but I wasn't poor. I was relying completely on my parents to pay for stuff. I was very lucky. I had no savings. And what I desperately wanted that first year in law school for my first summer job was one that paid. As I said, I was from New Jersey, and I wanted to be a New Jersey defense lawyer. New Jersey was all that I knew, and there was one New Jersey firm interviewing first-year law students at Duke that was actually paying a salary. Most of the firms that came to campus were interviewing for second summer jobs. It wasn't so easy to get a first-year summer job, and one that was paying was incredibly rare. Now, New Jersey wasn't New York City, so if I wanted a paying job, I'd need to go to New York City which I was really desperately afraid of, just was terrified of, of New York City. So I had to get this New Jersey job. I just had to get this job, and I wanted it so bad. I still remember the name of the firm, Porzio, Bromberg, and Newman. And Duke wasn't filled with a lot of people from New Jersey, so it was basically me and one other student who wanted this job. And we, we had an interview for it. And despite my massive imagined charisma, <clears throat> I didn't get the job. 
naturally, I had no connections, didn't even know any other lawyers. And the other guy did and had some kind of connection. And this is the way life is sometimes is uh, you just know somebody and that'll get you the opportunity, even if it's an idiotic decision to do so. And to me, it couldn't have been more clear that the other guy was inferior in terms of lawyering. And I never thought he'd ever be a practicing lawyer because he just didn't have, there was just nothing there. Uh, you could just tell those kind of things. Even back then, if you had a, a working brain, he now works at a legal search firm where he's a legal recruiter. And of course, I'm me. I still remember that slight. And it's over 34 years ago. I never forget a slight. You shouldn't either. And this is how being a young lawyer was at times. So many other kids had connections, parents or whatever, who made it easier for them. I had nothing and always had to scramble. No one did a thing for me. No one could because I didn't know anybody. So now I couldn't, didn't get this job and I had to scramble for something for the summer. And I saw a listing for a job as an unpaid intern in the U.S. Attorney's Office, the Newark, New Jersey Strike Force for Organized Crime. Newark is where I was born. I wanted to be a defense lawyer, and I certainly enjoyed the Godfather movies. And although it was a non-paying job, it looked like fun, and, and I had no other choices. So I put in my application, and I was delighted to get an interview. And remember, this is pre-internet. Everything was slower back then. And I was so green back then. I, I made my way to the U.S. Attorney's Office in Newark for the interview. Sam Alito, Samuel Alito, the Supreme Court Justice who wrote the decision overturning Roe v. Wade, at the beginning of the year, was the U.S. attorney in Newark at the time. His name was on the wall inside the office. I was led into a large conference room, and I waited a few minutes. I was shaking like a leaf, I'm certain. In walks this really tall, buzz-cut, red-haired prosecutor, really tall, which means he was taller than 5'10", and his name was Grady O'Malley, and he, and he looked like a cross between a basketball player and a drill sergeant. In fact, as I later learned, he had played college ball at, at Manhattan uh, College and was drafted by the Atlanta Hawks in the 19th round. Back then, in the 60s, or when 70s, whenever it was, 60s, 70s, 60s, I think, they actually had more than two rounds of an NBA draft. This was the 19th round. Imagine that. And he actually played in the NBA, Grady O'Malley. Now, I knew nothing about nothing then. Grady was very intimidating to me, and he sat down, and he ran through some questions which, you know, meant nothing, you know, bullshit stuff. And it was clear to me that this was a very law and order type guy, and I was nervous because I wasn't exactly a law and order type kid. I answered all the questions uh, and thought I was doing a good job, and then he asked me if I had ever used illegal drugs, and I knew enough to say no. Then he asked me if I had ever used marijuana, and I froze. I started to speak. I could feel my lips moving and nothing came out. I look back on this and I laugh. I still remember like it was yesterday. I'm still the same kid as I was in the spring of 1988 when I interviewed. But 34 and a half years later, there's almost no situation that I can't figure my way out of now. Despite the pressure, I see things that Oftentimes, no one else can see in a situation, and it's helped me tremendously as a lawyer. I can see all the tells, all the signs where people are trying to hide things in cases. I can see them, and it allows me to stay one step ahead as a lawyer. But back then, I was clueless, and Grady could see my hesitation. I saw it in his eyes. He's now 74 years old, Grady, and he's still working in that same building. He's a lifer as a U.S. attorney. His hair is gray, what's left of it. 
and he's a true believer as a prosecutor, which isn't a bad thing, I suppose, if you're interested in uh, combating crime. But back then, he hadn't yet turned 40. He was so young. He was just a hot-headed Irish guy who had no patience for bullshit. He saw me frozen. And despite the fact that we were so different, Grady gave me a gift, which I'll never forget. He began shaking his head no to me as he asked the question again. Have you ever used marijuana? And he's shaking his head no as he's asking me. Even then, I was so green, it took me a few seconds to figure out what he was trying to communicate to me. I figured it out and I said no, and I've never tried marijuana, lie. And uh, the next question, we continued on with the interview. A couple weeks later, I got the news I had the job. And along with a bunch of other interns, we were to report to the U.S. Attorney's Office and get our ID cards, and we'd be placed in various sections of the strike force for organized crime. We'd be placed with different prosecutors. Prosecutors had different things going on. And there was only one thing that I wanted to do in that office. Right then and there, a mafia trial that was well into its second year was going on right across the street at the U.S. courthouse in Newark. The case was United States versus Anthony Asituro. It, was a tw- it ultimately became a 21-month mob trial with the entire New Jersey faction of the Lucchese crime family on trial, and it was nearing an end, and I desperately wanted to work on the case. There was nothing else I wanted to do in the strike force. The rest of the shit was boring. Nothing. I had never been inside a courtroom before. I had never seen a trial. This would give me the chance to see real defense lawyers in this hugely high-profile case. I wanted to see what all the fuss was about. I wanted to see if I could do this for a living. If I had it in me, I didn't know. Except I had one problem. The prosecutor who seemed to be in charge of making the decisions as to whether or not, you know, I'd work on that section, whether or where I would work and for who, was this wormy guy. His name was... Jeff Bronster, I recall. He was probably only like 10 years older than me back then, but he, to me at least, I could be wrong, he had this seemingly hugely important job, and I was a nothing, but an I know. I didn't get the feeling that he liked me much, and I don't remember why. I really don't. But he didn't place me with Grady, who was the lead prosecutor on the Asatero case. And there was another prosecutor on that trial. There was actually two others. One of them who was sort of like an equal with Grady, was a guy named Joe Braunruther. And he was affectionately known as Joe B in the office because his last name was too long. The nicest guy, hardworking, down to earth, no ego, just worked hard and worked well. He was smart. He was a great prosecutor. He had a, a great way about him. And I remember him like it was yesterday. He had this floppy black hair and he had this big black mustache. He looked like Pancho Villa. And I remember like these guys as they were back then, they're frozen in time to me in my memory. Joe, I looked him up. He's now the head of litigation at Johnson & Johnson, which is a, a fantastic job. And he looks to have had a very successful career. I couldn't be happier for him because he's such a great dude. He was kind to me. And I don't know, I bet he remembers me. I had seen him after this case and one other case. But you don't, for me, you don't forget the people who are good to you on your way up. And this was the very first rung on the ladder for me. I don't even consider it a rung, but it was important for me to get this exposure that summer and to sort of figure out if this is what I had inside me. And I wanted desperately to work for Grady and Joe B that summer, and Bronster was blocking my way. So I said, fuck it. I'm going to go to Grady, and I'm going to ask him if I can work for him. I'm not going to wait and be a victim and have to 
do some boring crap in the office. I'm not getting paid. I want to learn. I want to see. I want to uh, experience something. And this was a theme that I would follow as a young lawyer when I began working for Michael Kennedy when I graduated two years later. If I wanted to work on a case, I told him. I wasn't going to be a victim and just eat shit. I wanted to learn. So Grady went over Bronster's head and took me and one other kid, a kid named Doug from Seton Hall Law School, had a big-ass tattoo on his arm. I remember he used to wear short sleeve shirts under his suit, and the, the uh, tattoo would be right there. It was odd. But he was a great kid. I have no idea where Doug is now. And uh, we got to work with Grady and Joby on the trial. And there was also another woman who worked on the case. I think she was from Pennsylvania. Her name was Barbara Miller. She was very mousy with big glasses. Very pleasant person, but I wasn't really close with her. She was just doing her job. We were interns, Doug and I, and we helped them get exhibits ready. We wheeled carts with evidence across the street to the courthouse from the U.S. Attorney's Office. Sometimes they were blocks of freeze-dried cash that was seized or cocaine, bricks of cocaine. It was crazy back then. You could just walk across the street with this cash or this cocaine, and, you know, you were trusted. We didn't do anything that mattered, but we got to sit in court and watch all day, every day, and it was incredible. Jeff Bronster was pissed at me after, I remember, and he was never nice to me. And, you know, now he's a nothing attorney in New Jersey practicing alone, and he doesn't exist in in my world as a criminal defense attorney. Once someone uh, in a case that I had in New Jersey uh, mentioned he was looking for a new lawyer and mentioned Bronster as a possible hire, and I quickly kiboshed that. I forget no slights. I don't care how small. I don't care how early it was. I forget no insults, and I never forgive them. That's how you treat your enemies. If I saw Jeff Bronster today, I'd tell him the same thing. Go fuck yourself. The courtroom in this case was gigantic. It had to hold 20 defendants at like at least 20 lawyers, paralegals, court reporters, the jury. The defendants were all dressed in polyester knit pants, knit shirts, all, all wise guys. They all dressed like my father, frankly. That's how my father dressed when we grew up in New Jersey. And these were my people. I mean, they looked normal to me. The judge was Howard Ackerman. And he was like a mile away, and he was up up top on a raised area where the bench was, where his uh, his pulpit was, so to speak. And from what I could tell, and again, I was very young, so my memories are what I could experience and understand then when I didn't really know that much. The one thing that the defendants, the defense lawyers, and the prosecutors seemed to agree upon was that Ackerman was a clown. He asserted no control over the courtroom, which was one of the reasons why the case was lasting 21 months. One of the defendants, uh, this fat dude named Jackie DeNorcio, he was a clown type of person, made jokes all the time, but still a dangerous drug-dealing mafia dude. He represented himself during the trial after firing his lawyer midway. He was serving unrelated drug charges, a sentence for unrelated drug charges, so he would have to come out from the back of the courtroom from a holding cell while everybody else, all the other defendants were out on bail and they came through the front. And he was always making, you know, wisecracks in court to the judge. And he was antagonizing Grady, who had to play by the rules because he was a federal prosecutor. Nobody expected DeNorcio to play by the rules. He wasn't a lawyer, didn't know what he was doing. So he took advantage of that. And Grady only knew one way, full steam ahead. And they nearly came to blows a number of times during the trial. I remember I was there. By the way, a book was written about this case after it was over called The Boys from New Jersey, and a movie came out with Vin Diesel as Jackie DeNorcio. 
It came out in 2006. I think it said, Find Me Guilty or something like that. I was not featured in either the book or the movie. Find Me Guilty. I think that's what it was. Vin, Vin Diesel as Jackie DeNorcio. Judge Ackerman was just like a two-faced clown, I remember. I have memories of him. Uh, the defendants would walk up to the bench and they would show them uh, show him pictures of their children and grandchildren. He would say how cute the kids were. And then he'd lambast them when they were out of the courtroom. He just couldn't handle a room full of wise guys who never seemed nervous during the trial. It was always a big joke to them, even though they were facing decades in prison. Now, the prosecutors who had everything to lose, however, they were high strung. One guy who was not high strung on the team was the case agent, a fellow named Dennis Marshallonis. He was this fast-talking, also wisecracking, really smart agent who put the entire case together. A massive amount of wiretap evidence, informants, drugs, cash. The case had it all. I remember, and again, I'm just remembering this spontaneously, but I believe the wiretap was from a restaurant called the, a hole, the Hole in the Wall restaurant. I just remember that. It just popped into my head 34 years later. It seemed to the untrained eye that this was a slam dunk of a case. But again, what did I know? I didn't know anything. This is the first case I had ever seen. The lead defendant was a fellow named Anthony Asaturo. He was the short squat guy, silver hair. His nickname was Tumac. And he was named after the caveman of the 1940 film, One Million BC. And he was in charge. That's why he was the lead defendant. He was a powerful captain. I think, I don't know if he eventually became acting boss of the New Jersey faction of the Lucchese family. Other defendants had nicknames like Jerry the Jew. Uh, one guy was Mad Dog Michael Tassetta, not to be confused with his younger brother, Marty Tassetta, who was also there as a defendant. The Tassettas were cousins with Michael Perna. He was on the case uh, as well. And the Riccardis. They were brothers that were on the case. Thomas was just a stone-cold killer. You could just see it in his face. I was a kid. I had never met a killer before, at least knowingly met one. He just looked like a stone-cold killer. He had dead eyes, never smiled. He was very tan, and he was terrifying looking. His brother, on the other hand, name was Danny, whose nickname was Bobo. And Danny was chubby, and he looked like a bobo. I mean, he was, did not look serious, was joking a lot. Thomas was a killer, in my mind, and, and Danny was not. Thomas Riccardi was accused, I don't know if he was convicted, I don't recall, of killing a businessman in New Jersey named Vincent Jimmy Sinatra Craparata. How did he kill him? He beat him to death with a metal golf club. These are charming people. But again... They're my kind of people. This is kind of what I grew up with in Clark, New Jersey. Looking back, Michael Tassetta was second in charge. He was second in command. And I knew that back then, that Asatura was first, Tassetta was second. And Michael was kind of a, a sloppy mess. And Marty was thin, good-looking, and well-dressed. There was two brothers. They looked completely different. But for 1988, Marty, that's what people looked like. He was a slick Italian-looking guy with the hair, the clothes, the shoes white shoes. <clears throat> Marty eventually became boss of the Jersey crew, the Jersey part of the Lucchese family. And this was the case. <clears throat> and incredibly, back then, looking back, there were some really fine defense lawyers on the case. Now, I knew nothing about what was good or bad back in terms of lawyering in the summer of 1988. What did I know? I never even met a defense lawyer. But when you see a good lawyer, 
You know it. I recognize that now. And Michael Critchley, who represented Michael Tessetta, was the best. And I knew it back then. Just a fantastic, smart, charismatic, very New Jersey defense lawyer. Every time he spoke, I was transfixed. As I got older and learned more, I confirmed that, in fact, Mike Critchley was a fantastic trial lawyer. Just amazing. Just brash. He was rough. He was strong. He was smart. He took no shit from the witnesses. He was a brawler, and I loved him. Loved him. I would have loved to have worked with him out of law school. Another great defense lawyer who sticks out in my memory was David Runke, who still practices in New Jersey with his wife, Jean, and he practices all over. Very down-to-earth, quiet, not a flamboyant guy like Critchley at all, but that helped his believability. I had the incredible good fortune to work with David on a death penalty case for Gurmeet Singh Dinza in 1999. Now, I've talked about this case. That was the case with uh, Money Marvin Dodson and all the stuff we did to destroy his credibility. David sat with Jerry and I during that trial. He was our death penalty expert. And David was everything I remembered him to be, everything that I hoped that he still was from 1988, 11 years earlier, when I was on that case and, and got to watch him work. Every trial day was a joy. I'd watch the other defense lawyers come in in the morning, the defendants, everybody was very friendly with, for me, excuse me, to me, even though I was working for the government. I mean, I wasn't one of the prosecutors. I was just a kid. And one of the other kids in our larger internship program had a father who was a big attorney in one of the firms that was representing one of the defendants. Now, I desperately wanted to work at that firm because that's all I wanted was New Jersey at the time. So I asked the kid to help me get an interview. I wanted to be a defense lawyer at that firm. I didn't want to be a, a harumphing white-collar dude only. I wanted to fight in the mud on cases like this. When the defendants would say hello to me, I'd nod back and smile. I didn't want to piss Grady off, though, because he didn't seem to me as the kind of dude that would be okay uh, with me making nice with the defendants or their lawyers, and I can't really blame him for that. But I only wanted to be a defense lawyer. I never wanted to be a prosecutor, and I never was. I was always true to myself in terms of what I wanted to be. In fact, the funny thing, when I'm just as an aside, when I finished my next summer job the following year, I worked in a big firm in New Jersey, in Newark also. And at the end of the second year, they <clears throat> either give you an offer to come back when you graduate or they don't. I worked uh, mainly for a fellow named Larry Horn, who was a, a criminal tax lawyer at Sills Cummins. That was the firm that I was at. And I got my offer to come back and Larry called me up. I was sitting in my apartment at Duke and he said to me, you're not coming back here. And I'm like, what are you talking about, Larry? I can't wait. I want to work with you. I loved the summer. It was amazing. He says, you don't belong here. You're too good for this firm. Go to New York. I'll help you any way I can, but you can't come back here. You don't belong here. That was a selfless thing. Another thing that somebody did for me, selfless, that changed my life. Larry Horn treated me like a son. I only worked with him one summer. Just a fantastic guy. I don't think he'll ever be hearing this podcast, but that was a guy who steered me in the right direction and really changed my life. Larry Horn, great lawyer from Newark. If you ever have a criminal tax problem, I don't care if you're in Newark or wherever, Larry Horn at Sills Cummins, that's your dude. Now, these trial days would end the same way that we had. We'd come back to the office across the street from the courthouse, and we'd all settle into chairs in Grady's office, and the prosecutors would ask Doug and me what we thought of the day, what worked, what didn't work, and it was just a joy to be part of it, to feel like an almost lawyer. I couldn't wait to get started. Little did I know that 16 years later, 
From that summer, I'd be representing the alleged boss of the Gambino family in federal court in New York City, the place that I was once terrified of. As the weeks went on that summer, the case was ending and summations were about to begin. The prosecutors were figuring out who would do the opening summation, who would then do the rebuttal summation after all the defendants went, every defense lawyer. And I was doing my typical summer stuff, you know, at night. I didn't have any homework. I didn't have any work to do. I was getting drunk with my friends from college, going to bars, high school, those friends. Same old stuff. That's what people from New Jersey do. And I had a Toyota Celica at the time. It was silvery blue. I had had it since 1982. So the car was about six years old and it was time to sell it as it was falling apart. This was all pre-internet. You couldn't sell a car on the internet back then. So I just put it on the street with a for sale sign in the window with my phone number. I had some calls on it. I think I was selling it for $3,200 or so. And then the doorbell rang and it was a Sunday morning. I opened up the door and there's like five very Guido looking Italians standing in my doorway. One woman and like four old kind of wrinkly raisin looking guys. And they wanted to buy my car and I was thrilled. The woman was younger, maybe in her thirties. And I walked outside uh, to the car to show it to them. I was thrilled. Couldn't believe my good fortune, but they didn't seem to care about looking at the car closely, which was weird. I remember thinking, I remember like it was yesterday. It was a sunny Sunday. They did notice my Duke law sticker that was on the back window. And they asked me about it. I told them I had just finished my first year at Duke law. And, and then the Guidos asked me what I was doing for a job that summer. And I mentioned I was working for the U S attorney's office in Newark. I didn't want to go into much more of it. Who knew they responded. Actually, the woman that was doing all the talking responded. Oh, wow. Our cousin Anthony is on trial in Newark Federal Court right now. And I kind of froze. I was like, Anthony who? And she said, Anthony Asituro. And all of a sudden was like, oh, shit. And I just wanted to get out of there. I just had to get away from them. I was terrified. So I tried to get away politely. I was much more polite then than I am now. And they were like, look, we want to buy your car. And I said, you're not buying the car. They asked me who was doing the summations in the case for the government. And in, suddenly it felt very sinister. And I was like, look, this isn't a good idea, you guys buying the car. Then they pulled out a big wad of cash and said, here's $5,000. We want the car. I told them the car was for sale for only 3000 or 3200 whatever it was. Nope. Nope. Here's 5000 And I said, look. You're not buying the car. I'm sorry. And I got the fuck out of there. I was shaking when I returned to my house. I remember shutting the door as quickly as possible and locking it. I was just a kid. Me today would have handled that much uglier and much more forcefully. Me then was scared. And I didn't sleep that night. I wrestled with telling the prosecutors, do I even tell them? If I keep my mouth shut, would it just go away? And it seemed to me like they were trying to bribe me. I mean, what else could it be? But if I tell Joe B and Grady, are they going to think that I had something to do with it, that I caused this to happen? Are they going to tell the judge? Will it become public? I wanted no part of this. I didn't want to be part of derailing a 21-month trial. I went to the U.S. Attorney's Office in the morning, you know, as per my regular job. And I decided I've got to, I've got to tell them. So I told Joe B and, and Grady I needed to speak to them. 
We sat down in the office and Joe B was calm. He was always the person to approach on something that was trouble because he just was just the best guy. I remember thinking, man, I wish this guy was my father. Just a great guy. We sat, and of course, he was only like 10 years older than me, probably. We sat down in Grady's office. I told him everything that happened. Grady took it a lot better than I thought he would. He reasoned that they did this in order to provoke a mistrial, that they expected they were going to lose the case, and that we would run to the judge and tell him what happened, and it could possibly cause the case to end, the trial to end, and make the government retry it. But that would have been impossible because they weren't going to retry a 21-month case right at the very end. So the prosecutors, Joe B. and Grady, decided to do nothing about it. We would not talk about it again. When I went to court that morning, and I was nervous now, I was, I was shaky. This was like the first thing that ever happened in my career that, that scared me. I saw Anthony Asaturo in the hallway. He smiled at me. I remember it was just this, it felt very evil. Where before I wouldn't have thought anything of it. I remember being almost sick to my stomach. To me back then, these were terrifying people. They were friendly, but they were capable of killing me too. Today, I recognize them. You know, Now that I've dealt with hundreds of these types of men, they're just men, albeit dangerous ones. And today, I'd rather let them kill me than do their bidding in any capacity which could get me involved in their crimes. I just don't care. And I think that's one of the reasons I've become a successful lawyer. I just don't care. I'm not afraid of anything. I'm not going to show any fear. I went back to Duke. The summations were getting ready to start, but I had to go back to law school. I went back to Duke a few weeks later in the middle of summations. I forgot about the case a bit, and I was sort of back in the swing of things. The class was just starting, but I didn't forget about it for long because I was at a bar in Raleigh, North Carolina named Barry's Three. We used to call it Barry's, Barry's, Barry's. And I walked outside. It was the end of August 1988, and I glanced over at the newspaper box. Remember those? There were these metal boxes where you could put change in and open it up and get a newspaper, and you could steal all the newspapers if you wanted, if that was your thing. And on the front of the box was glass, and that would show the front page of the paper that day. On the front page, above the middle fold, was a picture of Anthony Asaturo kissing Michael Critchley on the cheek. That was the front page of the Raleigh News and Observer, 500 miles away. The boys from New Jersey were acquitted, all of them, in just 14 hours of deliberations. I was stunned. The next day, I called the U.S. Attorney's Office to speak to Dennis. He got on the phone. Remember, there was no internet back then. This is how you found that news. Sometimes it took days. I got the FBI agent, Dennis, on the line, and he was talking a mile a minute. They were all just crushed. Their careers were over. He couldn't believe it. The press was pounding on the door. He was out of breath. And I really liked Dennis. He was a great guy, a great agent. But I remember from that summer, the disdain that the feds, they all had for their cooperators. They were wise guys who were trying to save their skin. To the feds, these uh, cooperators were just mafia pieces of shit. They were cowardly. And the feds didn't care if they lived or died. And frankly, as a defense lawyer today who's had to cross-examine dozens, if not a hundred of mafia turncoat rats, I felt the same way. I didn't give a shit if they lived or died. Look, I'm, looking back, I'm happy that the feds hated them as much as we do. Now, this was the only job I ever had in my entire career where I worked for the government. And it was just a summer internship, the very first summer of law school. So what happened next? 
Well, five years later, Michael Tassetta and his cousin and co-defendant Michael Perna pled guilty to bribing one of the jurors. Apparently, the, one of the jurors was related to a made guy and let it be known he was on the jury. He was paid $100,000. So Tassetta and Asituro and perhaps others knew that the worst that could happen would be a hung jury. But incredibly, they ended up getting all 12 to acquit on every charge. It's amazing. But the years later, when it came out that the trial was fixed, didn't make as much news as the acquittal. Grady still had, the, had lost the biggest trial in his life, and that acquittal was all that anyone remembered. And years went on, and I began representing mafia guys after graduating law school. And then in 2008, this is now three years after I finished the Gotti trial, my client, Anthony Curley Russo, was one of the most decent guys I've ever had the pleasure to represent. I love him. Was indicted in Morristown, New Jersey. Anthony was alleged to be a captain in the Lucchese family, and I had done wonders for him uh, in his first two cases that I had with him. First one was getting him 30 months in a federal conspiracy to murder charge in the Southern District of New York. Worked on that case with Jerry. Then I, I got him no time for a federal heroin case in the Eastern District of New York. In 2008, I represented him on a loan sharking charge in that Morristown case. It was a 32-defendant case. Who else was charged? In that case, well, Marty Tassetta and his cousins, Joe Perna, Ralph Perna, all the Pernas, they were all co-defendants as well on that 21-month case from the summer of 1988. Now it's, what, 20 years later? Naturally, my client Anthony got out of it with a no-jail deal. I had amazing luck for Anthony Russo. Great guy. It was thrilling. But I saw Marty Tassetta there, and he was in chains, and his dark jet black hair was gray, and it was just bizarre to see these guys again. Anthony Asituro eventually flipped and became a government witness. His excuse was that the underboss of the Lucchese family, Anthony Gaspipe Casso, had marked him and his wife for death. There was a dispute within the Jersey faction of the Lucchese family. Naturally, of course, Casso flipped as well later down the road. But before he did, I represented him with Jerry Shargill. Small world. The Riccardi boys, including the golf club killer Michael, they all cooperated, including against their cousins, the Tassettas. Finally, decades later, a youngish guy and his mom came to see me on a case. It was a minor federal case, and it was in Camden, New Jersey. So I came in for the meeting, not the kind of case I'd normally be into. It wasn't a real big case. They were having a hard time with the prosecutor, they said. It was a Camden, New Jersey prosecutor. And I'm listening with, with half an ear. And I said, who was the prosecutor? Grady O'Malley, they told me. I took the case. Grady obviously was doing the case from Newark, traveling down to Camden. I called Grady. It was the first time that I had talked to him in decades, decades. He was quieter. He remembered me. He was thoughtful. He was generous, he was decent, and very by the book. He told me that he had been watching my career from afar. He was very proud of me. Made no judgment about me being on the other side now as a defense lawyer, as his enemy. He was still very by the book, but in a matter of minutes, we worked out a plea deal on the case, and I traveled to Camden for the sentencing. I remember uh, I had actually had a meeting with Grady in Newark about the case and it just was shocking to see him because I remembered him the way he was. Bright red hair, tall, strong. Now he was older. It was you know, 25 years later. 
And we went to Camden for the sentencing and Grady did not go hard on the client. It wasn't that big of a casing that Grady became a reasonable guy. He realized there's no point to kill this kid. And my guy got probation. It was a wonderful result. He was very lucky, the client, to have stumbled upon me as a defense lawyer with Grady O'Malley as the prosecutor. Grady couldn't have been more decent. And I recall, as I said, visiting with him in his office, couldn't have been more generous, couldn't have been more decent. He had made peace, I suppose, with himself, with his career, with what had happened. And the truth is, is he was the consummate professional. He had become a fantastic prosecutor. And as I said, uh, when the sentencing was over, I was exhilarated. A win is a win, even if it's a small one. It was a nice win. And Grady had bent over backwards to be fair to me. Nothing more than fair. That's all he was. He didn't give anything away. I walked outside and I picked up my car at the parking garage in Camden. And the door was smashed in. I had come full circle. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. You can find me on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio. I'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to a really important part, a really important memory of my life.